Um, We're reading uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to meet him. Are you, are you arguing with, what are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit and is robbed of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked the disciples to drive them out, but they couldn't. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I part with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him to him. When the spirit saw Jesus, he immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire and water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus asked. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Jesus had gone indoors. His disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive him out? He replied, this can come out only by prayer. Now, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles again to our passage this morning in the book of Mark, I just want to start as a way of introduction, just asking a few questions. Who remembers the World Cup of 1966? How many people were around to remember that? Not many of us. Uh, I, I was around, but I was too small to, to even be aware of it. But in 1966, England won the World Cup, and it was a stunning victory. Even more so, because of course, it happened in the home country, the host country, and at Wembley Stadium, which is the home of football. It was a tremendous achievement and people have been talking about it ever since and they've, they've written books about it, there's been TV programs about it. It is without doubt one of the greatest sporting achievements this country has ever known. The players of the nation celebrated, the, the nation itself celebrated, they were if you like on top of the world as people say, they were the nation's hero, those players of 1966. They reached the pinnacle of success, the summit of football glory. But what happened next? Mexico, 1970. Peter Bonetti was troubled with a knee injury. Jackie Charlton with muscle strain. Their first practice match was played in torrential tropical rain in Mexico, and then they flew to Bogota in Colombia for their first international friendly, but they were unable to practice there, again, because of torrential rain. They also played in Ecuador, a second friendly, but when they got back to Bogota, Bobby Moore was accused of theft, and they even appeared in court on a charge. 
then when they got into the competition, they beat Romania 1-0 in their first game. But they were beaten 1-0 by Brazil in their second game. And then they won against Czechoslovakia 1-0 to go through to the second round. But the commentators were derisive. With one newspaper saying, an almost embarrassing performance from the world champions. After a dubious award of the penalty, the crowd's attitude changed from indifference to abusive hostility. It was in midfield and attack where they produced insufficient evidence to convince even many of their supporters that they can again overcome West Germany. Sure enough, in the second round, they were beaten by West Germany 3-2 and were knocked out in the heat and humidity of Mexico. The Guardian newspaper called it the day England was dethroned. So what does it feel like to have a dramatic come down? Maybe you know how it feels. Maybe you've had an outstanding year at work to be followed by a dreadful one. Maybe you were the hero of the sports match at school and then the villain at the next Or even just had a fantastic holiday, a wonderful Christmas, a celebratory birthday of some sort, and then come down to the reality and the drudge of everyday life on the following Monday. What we see in today's passage in Mark chapter 9 is a come down for the disciples from the mountain. A physical come down, but also a bit of a spiritual come down. The disciples have been up on the Mount of Transfiguration, as it's called, They've seen the Lord Jesus transformed, physically transformed. They've been given a glimpse of him in his glorious power. A clue to how he will be seen when he returns the second time. And on top of that, they met Moses and Elijah. And as Dav indicated last week, they they might have preferred to have stayed up that mountain enjoying that glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. They even heard the very voice of God speaking out of the cloud. It must have been amazing. But they had to come down from the mountain. And they were met by argument and discord and crowds of needy people. Verse 14 of chapter 9. When they came down to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Interestingly, Moses himself, who they'd met up the mountain, he had a similar experience. Way back in Exodus 32, in the Old Testament, you read that when he came down from the mountain, after being given the law from the very words of God and the tablets with the law carved into them by God's own hand, when he came down from the mountain, I mean, he'd been exposed to God's glory up there as well. And he himself was glowing with that reflected glory from the Lord, from the power of it. But when he reached the foot of the mountain, what did he find? He found that people had carved an idol. And they'd gone completely off their heads with disobedience while he'd been up the mountain. But where Moses had to deal with a situation of discipline, and that led ultimately to the death of 3,000 people in the camp, We see Jesus here having to deal with a dispute with love and patience. Just a little while ago, he was up there with his glory shining. But now we note with humility 
how he's actually dealing with the situation. It shows the mark of the saviour, how he puts his glory aside, if you like, to once again just deal with people in their weak and sinful nature. I wonder actually, though, if a trace of that glory was still on him, if he still had a bit of a glow about him. Remember, Moses came down and the glow of the Lord Jesus, on, of the Lord God on his face was such that he had to have a veil put over his face. But I wonder if a little bit of that trace was still on Jesus, because the people here were, as it says, overwhelmed with wonder when they saw Jesus. Maybe he had a little look of glory about him too. But what is this argument? This argument. The passage tells us, verse 14, when they came down to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law were arguing with them, the disciples, that is. Then in verse 16, Jesus asks, what are you arguing with them about? Well, we'll go on in a minute to look at the source of this argument, which is this failed healing with this boy. But what do you make of the fact that the teachers of the law were arguing with them in the first place? We shouldn't really be surprised, I guess. Being baptised can be a bit of a spiritual high for you, a bit of a peak, if you like, in your Christian life. But I remember someone telling me that once Michelle and I had been baptised 20-odd years ago, um, that the next thing we should expect is to be attacked. You will be attacked in your Christian life by the enemy, by the dark forces at work in this world. And they will use various instruments to attack you. It might be ill health, financial worries, disbelieving family, loss of friendships, temptation, accusation, dismissal or derision. And in this passage... In the absence of Jesus being up the mountain with Peter, James and John, the teachers of the law, who, by the way, are a long way from their home turf in Jerusalem, aren't they? They're, um, this is Galilee, it's the, the high country, the very north. So they must have really been campaigning against Jesus, following the disciples around to look for ways to criticise them, to pick on them and discredit the work of Jesus. So in his ab- absence, they've really kind of rounded on the disciples as they have failed to heal this young man, this boy. And you can hear their accusations. You can imagine them saying, ah, yes, so this rabbi, where is he now? eh? Not so powerful, is he, eh? Oh, you failed to cast this demon out. Well, what a shame. I wonder why. You could just hear this kind of argument going on. So this is what Jesus has come down the mountain to, to this bitterness and rancor. But he doesn't flinch for it, does he? He doesn't prefer to go back up the mountain to the glory, as perhaps we might have done. This is the all-sufficient saviour, and he's going to deal with the situation. He's your all-sufficient saviour as well. And whatever troubles you have to come down to in your life, any kind of, after any kind of spiritual triumph, he will deal with that too. So let's just look at what happened. Let's, um, let's look at this. This is my first heading, if you like, the failed attempt corrected. Verse 16, let's read again, verse 16. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked all the disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? 
Bring the boy to me. Let's just linger on this boy for a moment. Now, we've seen before in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus healing a man who was deaf and mute, a daughter who was possessed by an evil spirit, a woman who had 12 years of bleeding, a man possessed by a legion of evil spirits, another man with a shriveled hand, a paralyzed man, other demon-possessed people, other sick, and even a girl who was dead. And elsewhere in the Gospels, we see Jesus healing the blind, the lame, the deaf. But this boy is possibly one of the most serious challenges he's had. Not only do we have an evil spirit that's been with him since childhood, but he's, he causes him to be mute. He causes him to do self-harm. He tries to kill him, and he suffers fits of paralysis too. Imagine how extremely distressing that must have been for the family. Maybe against this challenge, the faith of the disciples had wavered. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not, says the father. Maybe the father has heard that they've been going around Galilee healing other people. And so he came to them with the faith and expectation that they would be able to heal this boy. But the disciples perhaps were losing their faith under the verbal attack of the teachers of the law, following them around and accusing them. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 19, You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. You can kind of hear the disappointment in his voice. A kind of, very well, I'll sort it out. I'll fix it for you. We see examples of this in our own everyday lives, don't we? Maybe a child that struggles to do up their shoelace or a colleague that's made a complete hash of a spreadsheet formula. Or maybe you tinkered with your own car thinking you could fix it and then ended up shamefaced at the garage. Who is he addressing as the unbelieving generation, I wonder? Who do you think? Some commentators think that it's the disciples, that he's rebuking them for their lack of zeal, their lack of faith, or lack of prayer in being able to deal with this situation. Some commentators say that it's the teachers of the law, in fact, because they are clearly unbelieving because of their sneers and accusations towards the disciples. But in a sense, we are all still living in an unbelieving generation, even today. Even perhaps more so today, there is an unbelieving generation full of accusations and sneers of those who have faith. But his complaint against this unbelieving generation is in itself interesting. Most of us perhaps would complain about our condition. You know, Jesus just come down from glory on the mountain, being with Moses and Elijah and hearing the, the Father speaking out of the, the, the cloud. And he might be thinking, oh, Look at what I've got to deal with. You know, most of us would perhaps deal with our condition, our discomfort, our frustrations, and maybe Jesus even thinking about the cross he's going to. He's told him in the previous chapter that he's going to die. But Jesus isn't. He's just focused on their faith, on the disciples, the crowd. And he desires that they would come in faith, should be healed, believe, not in unbelief, but believe. So he's going to cure this boy. As I said, Jesus knows he's going to be killed. He knows he's going to the cross. If you 
flick back earlier to um, chapter 8, verse 31. If you just turn back a page, you'll read in verse 31 of chapter 8. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. These are the people who are following the disciples around. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And in the passage that follows the one we're looking at today in chapter 9, we read from verse 31 in chapter 9, he was teaching the disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But he's not even complaining about this fate that he knows he has to face, what's coming up, what he's on the road towards in Jerusalem. He wants to teach them and encourage them. He sets out, an example, if you like, by performing this miracle. Verse 20 of our passage. So they brought him, that's the boy. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw him, through the boy that is, into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. That's been quite horrifying to see. Agonizing for the parents. Two points to note about this verse, though. Firstly, you may be, again, tempted to think, well, actually, perhaps he had a bad case of epilepsy rather than an evil spirit. That's one of the sneers and accusations people who look at the Bible might, might point to. But I've talked about this in a previous sermon on this topic. But note that when the spirit sees Jesus, it attacks the boy. Like a fit of anger being confronted by the Son of God. That evil spirit knows that he's got no power over this situation. It's like throws into a fit of rage, like a cornered beast fighting in this last throw. This is no medical condition the boy is suffering. This is one of the minions of an evil enemy determined to frustrate the work of the gospel, to frustrate Jesus. But Jesus will not have it. So secondly, note how the boy falls to the ground. Perhaps we're between these two passages where Jesus talks about himself as the son of man being killed and then rising again. Perhaps this is, if you like, an illustration, a picture in the middle between these two passages. A picture of what is to come with Jesus. So looking at, let's look now at the detail of how Jesus heals this boy. And we'll see what a picture it is and how important faith is in this passage. And what it means perhaps to us believers today. So my second heading, Jesus, the man of faith. We pick up the story in verse 21 where we read, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has it been like this? From childhood, he answered. Jesus didn't need to ask that question. He knows. But for our benefit, Jesus asked that so it can be recorded. From childhood, the father answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us. And help us. The father paints a piteous picture of the lad's suffering, but also displays his love for this poor suffering child. Nowadays, we have all sorts of medical advances and therapies to help people with severe medical, physical, or mental ill health. But in those days, they didn't have any of those things. And you can imagine, even if he'd taken this boy to the spiritual leaders at the synagogue, they wouldn't have been able to help him, and they may not even have wanted to. You can hear the desperation 
in his voice, reflecting the long and hopeless years of round-the-clock care and looking after this boy. You see, the teachers of the law law would have actually looked down upon this family. They would have said, well, surely this family's been cursed because of the sins of the forefathers. They would have considered him stricken, this boy, and they would remember the teachings of Moses in Exodus 34, chapter 7. Exodus 34, chapter, uh, chapter 7, we read this. Sorry, Exodus 34, verse 7, we read this. Yet he, that's God, does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So to avoid being unclean, they would have crossed the street to avoid this boy and his family. They would have said, well, obviously something's happened in their family's history, so he's been cursed by God. But Jesus is not like that. He is compassion itself. Again, if you look back in the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel, in chapter 4, verse 3, Daniel 4, verse 3, speaking of the Lord Jesus, says this, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. You see, where Exodus were talking about the punishment of the guilty from generation to generation. Daniel was talking about the Lord's kingdom, the eternal kingdom, his dominion from generation to generation. And as his earthly mother, Mary, sang, Jesus' mother, Mary, sang, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. See, the Lord's mercies are poured out generation to generation. So is some right irony Jesus asks, if you can? If? It's like, what do you mean, if? Think of those promises that Daniel's made and that song of Mary. If? Then he makes one of the most hopeful remarks in the Bible, one of the greatest verses in the Bible. He says, everything is possible for the one who believes. Everything is possible. Now, in Matthew's account, we see some added words from Jesus. Matthew chapter 17, this is the parallel passage. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. We were just singing about that in that song just now. This mountain will be moved. Nothing will be impossible for you. Everything is possible for the one who believes. How reassuring is that? Mountains are nothing to the creator God. Isaiah 54, the prophet speaking, verse 10. Though the mountains may be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. The compassion that Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe? That's the question this morning. Do you believe anything is possible? How big is your faith? The mustard seed is one of the tiniest possible seeds you can find. It's so tiny. So just how tiny a little bit of faith do you need to move a mountain? You can move mountains if you truly believe Everything is possible. Miracles can happen, even in this fellowship, even in your lives. The sick can be healed if it's God's will. 
Troubles can be avoided. Troubles can be overcome. Friends and family can be converted. Lives could be changed. The issues, the problems, the things you're anxious about and worried about, they could all be dealt with, with faith. But what is faith? Hebrews 11 gives what is the greatest definition of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see or don't have the physical evidence for. We have confidence, of course, in the cross, in the redeeming blood of the Lord Jesus and the power of the resurrection. We have hope and assurance in the promise he gave to that criminal on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. That criminal had faith. You know, we just have faith in the Bible, in the Word, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's written all the way through this Bible. We've never actually physically seen the Lord Jesus Christ. We never physically saw the cross, saw the, the miracles he performed, walked with him, heard him speak. But we believe it, we have faith, because we read about it. And in our hearts, we are converted, and we hear the Lord speaking to our hearts. Do you have faith? Immediately, verse 24, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You know, what honesty. What honesty. I bet we all have times when we suffer a measure of unbelief. I've been a Christian 20 years, and I have that sometimes. What a prayer this is. Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And in verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. How did the spirit react? The spirit shrieked, convulsed him, the boy, violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Do you see the imagery here? The boy fell to the ground and looked like a corpse. But then he was touched. With the touch of Jesus, he lifted him up. The word of the man, God, the man God, Jesus, healed him, but the hand of the Savior restored him, lifted him up. My friends, do you feel the need for the healing hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, the the healing word of the Saviour, that salve of salvation on the wounds that the world inflicts upon us, the soothing palm of the Prince of Peace? Do you want to be lifted up? It's like coming out of the waters of baptism. In baptism, we laid you down, and then you're lifted up again out of the water, symbolically dying to your sins and being lifted up to live for Jesus, to pick up your cross and follow him. Cry out, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Verse 10 of chapter 10 of Romans, Romans 10, 10. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Hallelujah. What a saviour. So don't hide from this world in 
the oblivion of TV or the intoxication of drink or the futility of endless hobbies or the things we do are pastimes, the things we love to do. Time is racing by. We're on a journey. We're on a race, if you like. Look to him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, wrote this about this passage. Dare you to believe? Are you willing to venture your all in the hands of Christ? To venture all your spiritual concerns with him? All your temporal concerns with him? Can you find it in your hearts to do this? If so, it is not impossible, but that though you have been a great sinner, you may be reconciled. Though you've been very mean and unworthy, you may get to heaven. If you can believe, it is possible that your hard heart may be softened, your spiritual diseases may be cured, and that weak as you are, you may be able to hold out to the end. You know, Binfield 10K is going out here this morning, and 10 kilometers is quite a way. There might be people staggering around, but they're determined to get to the end, get across that finishing line. I determined to finish the end of your race, like Paul says, to complete the race. What a friend we have in Jesus who says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. So believe, make it happen, have faith. So in conclusion, Jesus is the author, the perfecter of our faith. He put his hand down to the boy and the boy stood up on his feet. Do you know what? I'd love to know what happened next in their lives, that family and that boy. I often think of these things. You get these little snippets in the Bible, little stories of people's lives, you know, what happened to the um, uh, Syrophoenician woman, what happened next in her life. And, And this boy, was he converted too? Was he overwhelmed by the fact he was healed? Did the whole family become part of the early church? And, you know, did they become disciples of the Lord Jesus? We'll never know. But their story is immortalized in the Gospels here in this book. And we're still talking about them 2,000 years later. Verse 28, though. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Or as some of manuscripts have it, by prayer and fasting. This is a real gentle rebuke from Jesus. Perhaps they'd begun to rely too much on themselves. Remember, Jesus set them out to go and cast out demons and to heal the sick a little earlier in the gospel. And of course, he'd been up on the mountain. Perhaps they'd become to rely too much on themselves, thinking that they could heal people in their own strength and being faced with the accusations and of um, the teachers of the law following them around and nagging at them. And then meeting this poor boy, they realized the, their own inadequacy, the inadequacy of their faith. Perhaps a certain complacency had crept in and they'd kind of lost their keenness. Or perhaps they forgot to pray. It serves as a reminder to us, doesn't it? Never to be complacent about our faith and about the need to pray into situations. Do we forget to pray sometimes when we're at work or at home or dealing with difficult family situations at school with challenges about whether it's exams or anxieties about all sorts of things in life? Do we sometimes forget to pray? 
This evil spirit had been in this boy since childhood, the father said, from a very young age. So it was well entrenched, like a large invasive weed in the garden. It takes a lot of digging and pulling to yank it out. The disciples didn't need more strength. They just needed more faith. And a sacrificial faith at that, a fasting faith. One that gives up something to really focus on the Lord, on praying that this mountain can be moved, this thing can be done, it can be achieved. Do you have something that you've been praying about that doesn't happen? Something you really want but isn't happening? Do you pray but do you believe? Believe, have faith, don't give up, keep on praying and believe it will happen. Everything is possible for the one who believes. And maybe you too will see miracles. Pray for the impossible. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. Believe in the impossible. You too will see people like that boy laid down before Jesus, yet being raised by his hand. We'd love to see more people laid down here in his church, in the waters of this baptistry, being raised by the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray and believe. He hears the prayers of his people. I began by talking about some great come downs, that great come down of the England football team. Next time you are coming down from a mountain, whether it's real or metaphorical, come down onto the sure foundations of the Bible. Sure foundations, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the sure foundation and he came from the cross. He went to and came from the cross. And we read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We are told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We too need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Like that finishing line in the race out there, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author or pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's the pioneer because he goes forward and he leads the way. That's what a pioneer does. Sets out into that unknown territory to go out and fix things and to make roads and paths. He shows us the way of faith, the way to the cross. And he's the author of our faith. He writes it. It's written in his word. He's the perfecter of our faith. Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Do you remember the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? This is the Gospel of John, chapter 11, reading from verse 38. We see Jesus once more deeply moved. See how compassionate again the Lord Jesus. Deeply moved, he came to the tomb. This is his friend, Lazarus. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. The Lord, said Martha, this is uh, Lazarus' sister, the sister of the dead man. By this time there is a bad odour, for he's been in there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? If you believe. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe 
that you sent me. Do you want to see the glory of God? Believe. Just believe. Just believe. Amen.